Friends, there is no greater comfort to know that the Lord will hold us fast. Especially when we don't know what things will come, how things will develop. And friends, this weekend, we Texans have been reminded that we don't know. We don't know what things and how things develop in our lives. The Lord can surprise us in, in various ways. Uh, in particular, the people of, on the coast of, 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 of Texas have been not only encouraged, but they have been commanded to evacuate, to leave their homes, to leave their towns. Where would they go? Where would they go for refuge? When their homes and their towns in which they have uh, sought shelter until now, are no longer appropriate for, their, for being a shelter for them. Where would they go for refuge? Friends, it's somehow providential that this morning the reading of God's Word is going to be from a passage in which God is challenging His people and the nations around them to run to Him for refuge. The passage we are going to look at this morning in the book of Isaiah God warns several nations of the danger that is about to come upon them. And God's message in this passage will be not simply, run for shelter, get out. No, God's message is better than that. God's message is, seek the Lord for refuge. It's not merely just leave and find refuge wherever you can. That's what the world will tell us. God's message this morning is going to be, seek me, seek the Lord for refuge. If you have your Bibles open, I encourage you to to open your Bibles to uh, page number uh, 578 as we open God's Word to the book of Isaiah chapter 14. I'll be reading from verse 28 to chapter 17. Verse 14, it is going to be a little long, dear friends, and if you're not used to uh, hearing God's Word read in longer portions, I just encourage you to stick around. We'll make it through, uh, Lord willing, and, uh, and we pray that the Lord would show us what He has for our hearts from this passage. This passage is full of poetry. Uh, this passage is full of images, and I encourage you to think about these images as you hear and the contrast of what develops and how things change, the picture change often. But God, God's Word has a message for those nations and for our hearts this morning through this passage. Here's the Word of God from Isaiah 14, 28. In the year that King Ahaz died, came this oracle. Rejoice not, O Philistia, all of you, that the rod that struck you is broken. For from the serpent's root will come forth an adder, and its fruit will be a flying, fiery serpent. And in the firstborn, and the firstborn of the poor will graze, and the needy lie down in safety. But I will kill your root with famine, and your remnant it will slay. Wail, O gate, cry out, O city, melt in fear, O Philistia, all of you. For smoke comes out of the north, and there is no straggler in his ranks. What will one answer the messengers of the nation? The Lord has founded Zion, and in her the afflicted of his people find refuge. An oracle concerning Moab. 
Because Ar of Moab is laid waste in a night, Moab is undone. Because Kir of Moab is laid waste in a night, Moab is undone. He has gone up to the temple and to Dibon, to the high places to weep. Over Nebo and over Medeba, Moab wails. Over every head is baldness and every beard is shorn. In the streets they wear sackcloth. On the housetops and in the squares, everyone wails and melts in tears. Heshbon and Eleleh cry out. Their voice is heard as far as Jahaz. Therefore, the armed men of Moab cry aloud. His soul trembles. My heart cries out for Moab. Her fugitives flee to Zoar, to Eglath Shelishiah. For at the ascent of Luhith, they go up weeping. On the road to Horonaim, they raise a cry of destruction. The waters of Nimrim are a desolation. The grass is withered. The vegetation fails. The greenery is no more. Therefore, the abundance they have gained and what they have laid up, they carry away over the brook of the willows. For a cry has gone around the land of Moab. Her wailing reaches to Eglaim. Her wailing reaches to Ber Elim. For the waters of the bone are full of blood. For I will bring upon the bone even more a lion for those of Moab who escape for the remnant of the land. Send the lamb to the ruler of the land from Selah by way of the desert to the mount of the daughter of Zion. Like fleeing birds, like a scattered nest, so are the daughters of Moab at the fords of Arnon. Give counsel, grant justice, make your shade like night at the height of noon. Shelter the outcasts, do not reveal the fugitive. Let the outcasts of Moab sojourn among you. Be a shelter to them from the destroyer. When the oppressor is no more and destruction has ceased, and he who tramples underfoot has vanquished from the land. Then a throne will be established in steadfast love. And on it will sit in faithfulness in the tent of David, one who judges and seeks justice and is swift to do righteousness. We have heard of the pride of Moab, how proud he is. Of his arrogance, his pride, and his insolence. In his idle boasting, he is not right. Therefore, let Moab wail for Moab. Let everyone wail. Mourn, utterly stricken, for the raisin cakes of Kiharez. For the fields of Heshbon languish and the vine of Sibma. The lords of the nations have struck down its branches, which reached to Jazir, and straight to the desert its shoots spread abroad and passed over the sea. Therefore, I weep with a weeping of Jazir, for the vine of Sibma, I drench you with my tears, O Heshbon and Eleleh. For over your summer fruit and your harvest, the shout has ceased. And joy and gladness are taken away from the fruit of the field. And in the vineyards, no song are sung. No cheers are raised. No traitor treads out wine in the presses. I have put an end to the shouting. Therefore, my inner parts moan like a lyre for Moab, 
and my inmost self for Kihareseth. And when Moab presents himself, when he wearies himself on the high place, when he comes to his sanctuary to pray, he will not prevail. This is the word that the Lord spoke concerning Moab in the past. But now the Lord has spoken, saying, In three years, like the years of a hired worker, the glory of Moab will be brought into contempt in spite of all his great multitude, and those who remain will be very few and feeble. An oracle concerning Damascus. Behold, Damascus will cease to be a city and will become a heap of ruins. The cities of Areor are deserted. They will be for flocks which will lie down and none will make them afraid. The fortress will disappear from Ephraim and the kingdom from Damascus and the remnant of Syria will be like the glory of the children of Israel, declares the Lord of hosts. In that day, the glory of Jacob will be brought low and the fat of his flesh will grow lean. And it shall be as when the reaper gathers standing grain, and his arm harvests the ears, and as when one gleans the ears of grain in the valley of Rephaim. Gleanings will be left in it, as when an olive tree is beaten, two or three berries in the top of the highest bough, four or five on the branches of a fruit tree, declares the Lord God of Israel. In that day, man will look to his Maker, and his eyes will look on the Holy One of Israel. He will not look to the altars, the work of his hands, and he will not look on what his own fingers have made, either the Asherim or the altars of incense. In that day, their strong cities will be like the deserted places of the wooded heights and the hilltops which they deserted because of the children of Israel, and there will be desolation. For you have forgotten the God of your salvation, and have not remembered the rock of your refuge. Therefore, though you plant pleasant plants, and sow the the vine branch of a stranger, though you make them grow on the day that you plant them, and make them blossom in the morning that you sow, yet the harvest will flee away. In a day of grief and incurable pain, ah, the thunder of many peoples, They thunder like the thundering of the sea. Ah, the roar of nations. They roar like the roaring of mighty waters. The nations roar like the roaring of many waters. But he will rebuke them, and they will flee far away, chased like the chaff on the mountains before the wind, and the whirlwind dust before the storm. At evening time, behold, terror. Before morning, They are no more. This is the portion of those who loot us and the lot of those who plunder us. Amen. This is the word of the Lord for us this morning. Would you pray with me, asking the Lord to bless the preaching of his word? Father, we need your spirit to help us both understand your word, but also to apply to our hearts. Would you speak to us in a way that we would be humbled, that Christ would be exalted, and that you would call us to find refuge in you and enable us to do so. We pray that in the name of Christ and for his glory. Amen. Friends, the passage 
we have before us is a larger, uh, it's part of a larger section in the book of Isaiah. For those of you who are with us for the first time, we are working our way through the book of Isaiah, and we are taking uh, each, each chapter, each passage as it comes. Uh, let me tell you, if I was not committed to preach through Isaiah, uh, through the entire book, I would never, ever, ever would have chosen to preach from these three passages. So choosing to go through an entire book, um, and uh, I don't, we don't know yet at this point how long it'll take us, um, but choosing to work through an entire book challenges us, forces us to go through passages of Scripture that you might wonder, wow, what was this for? And what and how is this supposed to help me in any way, in, in challenging me, in, in, a, in, in encouraging me, in building me up? Friends, a passage we just read is part of a, of a series of, of 10 chapters from chapter 13 to 23 of oracles that God gives about surrounding nations around Judah. These oracles show that the destiny of, of these nations hang in the hand of God. That God is over and God determines and God watches over and controls that which happens with these nations. These oracles also reveal the reason why God ordained these experiences for his people. The, these instructions are very tragic. Uh, these distract, destructions, the, these experiences are not light matters. Friends, these experiences are not even just a light tropical storm. These are severe things that are about to happen uh, around the nations surrounding Judah. But these oracles also tell us that God is not done with these nations, even beyond the destruction. The text we read today includes messages that God gives to three particular nations or cities, Philistia, Moab, and Damascus. Each of, these, each of these areas, each of these nations have different challenges. Some of these uh, oracles that we have are very short. Some are longer. But there's an aim, a common aim, that brings these oracles together. And the main aim of these three messages is to challenge us to examine our path of refuge. To challenge us to examine ourselves, what is our path of refuge? Where do we run to for refuge? Our society values self-reliance. In various ways, we are taught to depend on no one else but ourselves. Uh, where do we run when we need help? We might say we run to Google to uh, search for solutions. I need to get this done, so I'm going to look up what I can do to get it done. Where do people run, though, when, when they find their hearts filled with anxiety, with fear, with lack of clarity? Google won't be able to help you with that. Where do you run when you have questions and you don't have answers? Well, the message God has concerning three nation, these three nations challenges us to consider three points. The first one is consider a lasting refuge. Consider a lasting refuge. The message concerning Philistia is very, very short. Philistia was always trying, as a nation, was always trying to, to rebel against the bigger powers. Uh, at this time, when, when this is written, uh, Philistia, with other surrounding nations, 
uh, was pressuring Judah to join in rebelling against this kingdom of Assyria that was brewing up in power and in, in, in threat. But remember something about Judah from previous chapters in the book of Isaiah. Judah had a king by the name of Ahaz. And remember how Ahaz, he has chosen what seemed in his heart to be a shrewd and a wise political move. He chose to rely on Assyria to get help. And he thought that by relying on Assyria, he will escape. Well, this year, when this oracle is written, the oracle for Philistia, the year that this oracle is written is the year that King Ahaz died. That meant that Judah now was no longer led by a man who was siding with Assyria. Philistia is thinking and hoping, I can get some help here. Perhaps now I can get Judah to come and join me in, 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 in rebelling against Assyria and making common ground against them. We know in verse 1 that this uh, oracle is written in the year that King Ahaz died. And then in, we see right away in verse 2 that uh, Philistia is rejoicing. We don't know the precise details, the exact details why Philistia is rejoicing. It could have been rejoicing because King Ahaz died and finally they they might have some hope in, in luring in Judah to join them in this, in this coalition against Assyria. It's also possible historically that around that time, one of the Assyrian kings actually died, and they thought that the, the, the death of the Assyrian king might bring instability and Assyria may not come against them anymore. We don't know exactly what led Assyria, uh, Philistia to rejoice. But God's message to Philistia feels like a cold shower. Look at verse verse, uh, 29. Rejoice not, O Philistia, all of you, that the rod that struck you is broken. Why not rejoice? God gives him a picture. And the picture is, instead of a broken rod, from the serpent's root will come forth an adder, and its fruit will be a flying, fiery serpent. The point of this picture is to declare that even though Philistia is rejoicing, thinking optimistically that her oppression may not come about, she will not be able to to escape the destruction that's caused by the coming empire of Assyria. In verse 31, God describes the Assyrian invasion as a smoke coming out of the north. It says, and there is no straggler in his ranks. God's message is, is that Philistia will not survive the coming invasion of Assyria. They have no reason to rejoice. But for God's people, the future is different. Look at verse 32. What will one answer the messengers of the nation? Now, it's possible, we don't know for certain, but it's possible that Philistia has sent messengers to Judah after Ahaz died to try to get Judah to join them. And now God gives Judah the answer they ought to give to the messengers who might have lured Judah to come and join uh, Philistia. And the message God, says, God gives his people to tell the, 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 the messengers is this. The Lord has founded Zion, and in her the afflicted of his people find refuge. How easy it would have been for God's afflicted people to look to Philistia's rejoicing 
and through her strategy of rebelling against Assyria and say, that's what we need to be doing. Let's join them. But here's the point that God gives his people. Refuge for God's afflicted people is not by relying on other nations, but by trusting in what the Lord does to protect his place, the place where he dwells. One of the commentators says so beautifully, the Zion people have no need to seek Philistia's help or to fear what Philistia fears. They have the Lord in Zion. Friend, I wonder if you consider the Lord to be a place of refuge for you. Would you run to him with the longings of your heart? Would you bring those longings to him and find refuge in him for your soul? Would you run to him to find answers when you're looking to life, to direction, to, to, to find solutions? Would you run to him to find the direction that you need? Would you run to him to find the comfort and the strength you need in the midst of your afflictions? Now, this text does not promise that God's people will be without afflictions. I wonder if you noticed um, how it describes the people of God as the afflicted of God's people. God's people are going, are going to go through times of affliction, but unlike the people of Philistia who had no place to turn to for refuge, the afflicted of God's people will find refuge in the Lord. And to be more specific, the refuge is in the place that the Lord has founded. Now this is interesting. It's not simply that the refuge is in the Lord. The refuge is in the place the Lord has founded. God dwells in the midst of his people. And wherever God's people are with the Lord in their midst, that's, that's the, the place of the Lord. Friends, when we come to New Testament, what we find out is that the Lord establishes not specific physical locations. The Lord establishes his dwelling place to be the church. After Peter confessed that Jesus is the, the Christ, the Son of God, Jesus said to Peter, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Friends, the church is not merely a place for religious services. The church is the gathering of God's people in the name of the Lord who proclaim the message of the Lord Jesus and where Jesus is present by the Holy Spirit. The church is a place that Christ himself is building up. Friends, I wonder if, if you've considered the Lord and the gathering of his people to be a place of refuge for your soul. It's easy when things get tough for us to take the path of neglecting the Lord and neglecting the people of the Lord, the people in whose midst the Lord dwells. It's easy to look at the rejoicing of Philistia and how well they seem to be doing and, that, and say, that's what I must be doing. But the Lord gives us a warning. Don't be lured by a rejoicing that will not last. Don't be lured by the rejoicing that is short-lived. Instead, set your eyes on the Lord. He is a refuge for his people. And he establishes a place of refuge for them so that they are not alone, in, but in the company of his people and the Lord in their midst.
students, you're starting a new academic year. For some of you, it's a new experience away from home, away from parents, away from your church, if you grew up in church. You're going to see all kinds of rejoicing and all kinds of manifestations of rejoicing on the UT campus. And you may see, why would I keep doing the things that I learned when I was in church with my parents? Moving forward, you may feel like nobody's going to know if you're going to show up to church or not. No one is going to know if you're going to skip gathering with God's people for the sake of completing an assignment. But you have to think about this. There's a warning that we get that's applicable for you at this season of your life. Don't be lured by those rejoicings that will not last. Decide today what you will find your refuge into, whether you will go through times of rejoicing or the times of affliction. Will it be hard, whether it will be hard and difficult, or you will feel like a carefree bird? Recognize this. Determine that the Lord would be your refuge. And when you will need him, and when you feel like you won't need him, he will always be there for you. But determine today what you will re- uh, find your refuge into. The second point that we see in this passage is the obstacle of seeking true refuge. If the first point was consider a lasting refuge, the second point is let's look at the obstacle of seeking true refuge. And this is found in the oracle addressed to Moab. This is a much more, a longer oracle than the one given to Philistia. Chapter 15 is taken entire, in entirety uh, by pictures of lament going on through Moab. We can look at verse 2. Moab is going to the temple and to the high places and weeping. In verse 3, everyone wails and melts in tears. In verse 4, certain cities are crying aloud. And in, in verse 4, we also see the men of Moab who are carrying the arms. Even they are crying aloud. It's like as if even the military is crying. In verse 5, we see a different picture. Someone else is crying. It's not the people of Moab. It's my heart cries out for Moab. Most likely, this is God's perspective. God tells us that even God himself is crying and lamenting for Moab. In verse 7 through 9, we see more details of more weeping and reasons why the people of Moab are, are, are weeping. But as they are fleeing, we see in verse 9 that that God sends a lion so they can't escape. And this is a puzzling picture. On one side, in verse 5, God is, is weeping himself over Moab. On the other side, in verse 9, he is the one sending a lion so that those who escape can't make it. Well, how can both be true? Well, friends, both are true. Because on one side, everything that happens to Moab is under God's control. Actually, it's more than that. It's under God's, de- under God's decree. He is decreeing these experiences. And yet, as he decrees these experiences for them, he is not careless. His discipline over Moab is not heartless. When he disciplines, God does so not out of careless anger, but he does it with a heart that breaks out in lament for the very people that he disciplines. God's Discipline is not heartless. In chapter 16, the scene of lament develops. God now speaks 
to his people, Judah, that if any of the refugees of Moab reach their land, God's people should give them shelter. Look at verse 4. Let the outcasts of Moab sojourn among you. Be a shelter to them from the destroyer. Friends, even though, even though God is bringing this chastisement against Moab, God is also providing the place of shelter for them in Zion. God's command to his people is to be open to receive the Moabites. But it's more than just shelter that God prepares for the outcasts of Moab. If we keep reading in chapter 16, God promises the Moabites to establish a new reign over them. Look at verse six, uh, chapter 16, verse 5. Then a throne will be established in steadfast love, and on it will sit in faithfulness in the tent of David, one who judges and seeks justice and is swift to do righteousness. God promises the Moabites the exact opposite of what they're going through. Instead of violence, they are offered a new king and a new kingdom established in steadfast love. A king who will rule in faithfulness and justice. In other words, when Moab is offered refugee status in Zion, they are not simply given refugee status. They are giving citizenship. They are being given citizenship in Zion. These Moabite refugees are giving all the benefits of the reign of a new kingdom that God promised for his own people. In this, friends, we see God's desire to not only chastise the nations, but God's desire to bring the nations back to himself and to his people. But there's a problem. There's a problem in this passage. This king will be in the tent of David. In other words, the reign that God offers the Moabites is centered around the king in the line of David. This promised king clearly points to Jesus, for Jesus alone is the one who came to rule in steadfast love and faithfulness. Friends, no other king that Israel had, no other king that God's people had, actually gave his life for his people. But Jesus did. He entered Jerusalem on a donkey, which was a royal symbol and days later, he willingly went to the cross. And the tablet over the cross where he was hung, the tablet over the cross read, Jesus, King of the Jews. Jesus established his reign over his people in steadfast love and faithfulness by giving his own life for the sake of his people. But the caveat for the Moabites and for, this, for the refugee, uh, Moabite refugees, is this. And the way one commentator put it, they could only enjoy Zion's security at the price of owning Zion's king. The only way they could find refuge and lasting refuge in Zion is if they were going to embrace also Zion's king. Did Moab accept this offer? Did Moab respond to this invitation that God gives them to find refuge in Zion? If we keep reading chapter 16, we realize that they didn't. Verses 4 and 5, we see Moab again wailing. This tells us that they would not take the offer to escape. Why not? Why would they refuse this offer? The answer is in verse 16. 
we have heard of the pride of Moab. How proud he is of his arrogance, his pride, his insolence, and his idle boasting. He is not right. Friends, in one verse, there are six words for pride mentioned in one verse. That's to show the intensity of pride that was going on in Moab. When, when, the, when this oracle describes Moab, it's as if he can't speak enough. He can't load enough words to mention pride, 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 pride when he describes Moab. Indeed, Moab was too proud to accept refugee status under the reign of Zion's king. Well, friends, recognize that this is a challenge that we have even as, as we hear the news of the gospel. Friends, if you're not a Christian this morning, the story that we have heard about Moab, the pattern of what was going on in Moab and what the Lord wanted to do for Moab is a pattern that anticipates what the Lord wants to do for anyone who is threatened and under the wrath of God. The gospel tells us that because of our rejection of God, because of our sin and rebellion against Him, every one of us is under the right condemnation of God. And God warns us that condemnation is coming. Flee from it to find refuge. But the only refuge that is available to flee from the wrath of God is in what God provides in the king whom he is about to send. He promised to send. That king he has already sent. That king is Jesus. It is through what this king that God sends, what he will do, that God's people can find refuge. But the big question is, will those who need refuge, will they humble themselves? Will they surrender themselves? Will they repent of their sins and rely and trust on what this king is able to offer them? Safety, salvation, true refuge. Oh, dear friends, without this repentance and without trusting in the Lord and embracing the king of Zion, there is no lasting refuge for us. You know, one of the obstacles that keeps us from responding in repentance and faith is pride. Pride. Why was Moab proud? Why did God, Moab ignore God's warnings? Why did, God, why did Moab refuse God's offer for lasting safety? Pride keeps you at the center of your world. Arrogance keeps you focused on what you can do for yourself. Arrogance keeps you to be at the center of what you can determine for yourself so that no one can determine for you what you want for your life. Friends, pride keeps us away from getting the real refuge that our soul needs. Pride is what keeps us away from turning to God's promises for refuge. Pride is what keeps us away from turning our ways to God. We would rather rely on ourselves, on our experiences, on our decisions, on our choices, rather than surrender to the reign of the Messiah. Friends, this challenge that God has given Moab is for us as well. Why is it that our hearts would rather trust our own plans rather than God's? It's because of the pride of the human heart. 
Pride manifests itself in various ways. But at the heart of each of us, in our own hearts, the heart of pride is that we worship ourselves. We are consumed with ourselves. And until we are willing to die to ourselves, we will continue to reject God's lasting refuge. Jesus, speaking to crowds, one day said to them, If anyone would come after me, he must first deny himself, pick up his cross daily, and then follow me. It's the obstacle to finding true refuge is our own pride. As the, as the people of Moab recognized and discovered, their greatest danger was not Assyria. The greatest danger that Moab had was themselves. What was in them. Not what was outside of them. Not what was coming to invade them. But what was in their hearts. And until Moab and until any of us recognize that the greatest danger we have is not what's awaiting for us out there. The greatest danger we have, the greatest enemy we have, is, is, is what is already in our own hearts. Our commitment to worship ourselves. But how to seek true refuge? We have seen the, the challenge to, to, to seek and consider lasting refuge. We have looked at the obstacle for finding true refuge. But how to seek true refuge? Let's consider the last oracle against Damascus. Damascus was the capital city of, of Syria. Don't confuse Assyria with Syria. Syria was one of the uh, neighboring nations to the northern kingdom of Israel. Um, the northern kingdom of Israel is also known and called by the name of Ephraim. And Ephraim and Syria had made a coalition against Judah. Why are these two cities now addressed? Damascus and Ephraim. Because these two cities were the ones who tried to kill the king of Judah so they could put a puppet king in, the, in his place so they could get Judah to align themselves with them against Assyria. In verses 1 through 6, we see a detailed picture of the destruction of these two nations and their capitals. Look at verse 1. Behold, Damascus will cease to be a city, and it will become a heap of ruins. And even the agriculture and their source of food will be wiped out. Look at verse 6. When an olive tree is beaten, two or three berries in the top of the highest bough, four or five of the branches of a fruit tree, declares the Lord of Israel. The point is that God will bring the nation of Syria and the northern tribe of Israel to ruin and to emptiness. But look at the great promise in verses 7 and 8. In that day, in that day, man will look to his maker. And his eyes will look on the Holy One of Israel. He will not look to the altars, the works of his hands. And he will not look to what his own fingers have made, either the asherim or the altars of incense. Friends, this is God's desire for his people. This is what God has been wanting for these nations to understand and to get. That mankind will look to, the, to their maker, not to the works of their hands. In this text... What Damascus and Ephraim have made with their hands were particularly altars and pillars of Asherim. This was their man-made religion. There are people today who might say, I am my own religion. Have you heard that? If you, want, if you have not yet, don't be surprised here in Austin. You, you walk around long enough and you'll hear people say that. 
Friends, it's easier for mankind to trust and to be consumed with what our hands make, with what we accomplish on our own. The challenge for, of this oracle is for us as well. How easy it is for us to fall in the trap of thinking that we can determine how we worship or what we worship. Some may think that we determine what true spirituality is. And if we like it, it must be true. How easy it is for us to think that we can worship God our way. What about other areas of life in which we turn our attention away from our maker and we become consumed with what we do, what we accomplish? We live in a society that prides itself in what we do. Friends, the, Austin, the, the, the motto of the UT Austin is, what happens here changes the world. How easy it is for us to, get, to grow in that pride. What happens here, what we do with our hands, has impact all over the world. And it's, and it's easy for us to, to feel the vortex, the, the pool of the pressure of doing more and more and focusing on what we can do by ourselves. Students, you are at the beginning of a new academic year. For some of you, this is the beginning of your college uh, season, college training. It'll be easy for you to be consumed with activities on campus, even with assignments, busy with, with taking more pride in making sure that you do all your assignments, even if it means skipping out on God, even if it means putting God on a, on a, on a back burner. Friends, God's desire is for mankind to look to his maker and to get our attention directed on the Holy One of Israel, not on what our hands are able to make. God's answer to Damascus and Ephraim is further elaborated in verse 9. In that day, their strong cities will be like the deserted places of the wooded height and the hilltops, which they deserted because of the children of Israel, and there will be desolation. Why is God bringing this emptiness, this destruction, this desolation? Look at verse 10. Here is the problem. For you have forgotten the God of your salvation and have not remembered the rock of your refuge. Friends, this is the problem. This is the indictment. They have forgotten the God of their salvation. This is a temptation for us as well. To put God on the back burner, to lose sight of him, and to lose sight of him as the one who indeed, in whom we find refuge, the one who is indeed our salvation. Friends, when we turn our attention to our own ways, to what our hands can make, to how we want to worship, to how we want to be spiritual on our own terms, we are forgetting who God is. We are forgetting what he has declared, what he and how he wants us to be. God is powerful to silence the nations. God is powerful even to wipe them out. We see that at the end of, of, chapter, of the chapter here. The God who portrays the nations um, through this imagery of mighty waters. Who can stop a thunder? Who can control the mighty waters? Friends, we are living in a weekend when we are reminded very clearly that mankind cannot do that. The nations roar like a roaring of many waters. He will rebuke them. He will flee from them. And they will flee away. I wonder what's easier. Is it easier to rebuke the nations or is it easier to rebuke the mighty waters? Clearly in Isaiah, the mighty waters are a picture of the nations. 
But Jesus, when he came to lift you on earth, he did rebuke the waters very physically. He's able to do that which mankind cannot do. Oh, dear friends, when we approach God and think about his greatness, his power, his majesty, Isaiah wants to help God's people recognize God is in the midst of all of this. And God is able not only to bring those waters to, to, to come and do their work, God is able to stop them as well. And God promised that his power is able to rebuke the nations. Look at verse 14. At evening time, behold, terror before morning. They are no more. In this oracle, this picture might seem to be just an exaggeration. The God who is able to rebuke the waters and in the morning, they're no more? Yeah, try that today. In the book of Isaiah, these are a picture of the nation of Assyria. The mighty waters is a picture of the, of the empire of Assyria. You go to read the book of Isaiah further on until you get to chapter 37, and we read that Assyria came against Judah, particularly against Jerusalem. The army was a great threat to Jerusalem and particularly to King Hezekiah. The people in Jerusalem one night went to bed knowing that a vast army was outside their walls. How would you go to sleep that night? Would you even be able to sleep when you know that a vast army of Assyrians are outside the city gates? They went to sleep that night. And before morning, they were no more. Read chapter 37. It actually happened. The God who is able to rebuke the nations. And he re in the point of, of, of the book of Isaiah, that, that, is, that God does it even in a night. Oh, friends, this is the kind of God who's telling his people and who's telling the nations, seek refuge in me. Seek refuge in the place that I found. Seek refuge in the place that I protect. Why would you want to look to the things you can make instead of looking at your maker? If the maker of the universe is able to rebuke the mighty waters and the nations of the earth, if he's able to put an end to them without any human help, why would you continue to look to yourself? Friends, if he's the one who determines our productivity and fruitfulness, why would we give... Um, why would we sacrifice our attention for the sake of just working harder so we, had, we would have more productivity? Parents, a new academic year starts. Don't sacrifice the attention to God for offering your kids more extracurricular activities, thinking that those choices would produce a better harvest for your kid and thinking that it's okay to do those things by skipping on what God wants us to do together as a congregation. Don't fall in the trap that if you're just going to work harder on your kids and just leave the, the, the spiritual things in the background so that your academic activities become the center of what you do with your family and your kids, don't think that you will be able to reap a good harvest years down the line. Students, don't sacrifice your attention to God, to his word, to gathering regularly with his people for the sake of what your hands can do or need to do. At the end of this chapter, the oracle calls out on the, on the people who think that they can become so productive that they, they sow in the morning and, and, 
and, and grow it by the end of the day, God says you can be as productive as you want to be. There will be no harvest. We grow in seeking refuge, not in what we can do. We grow in seeking refuge in the Lord by keeping him as a center and the focus of our attention by not forgetting that he is a God of our salvation and he is a rock of our refuge. What are the ways, my friends, in which your life can show that you are looking more to the work of your hands rather than looking at your creator? Are there things in your life right now that reveal that deep down you are looking more to yourself? You are more consumed with the work of your hand. God's desire is that mankind, and that includes everyone, you and me included, is that we would make more of God than the work of our hands, that we would make more of God than our academics, that we would make more of God than our social life, that we would make more of God than what our friends say on social media about us, that we would make more of God than how many friends we're able to develop this fall season, that we would make more of God and what he desires for us than what, than, than what anything that we can do for ourselves. Friends, today we examine the challenge of seeking refuge in the Lord. Consider a lasting refuge. Consider the obstacles of seeking ref, true refuge in the Lord. That obstacle is in your own heart, the pride of the heart. Finally, how to seek refuge. Seek refuge by turning your attention, your gaze to the Lord, by not forgetting God as being the God of your salvation and the God of your refuge. And friends, if he is not yet God of your salvation or the God of your refuge, and you'd like to know more about what it means to repent of your sin, to trust in the Lord Jesus, I would love to talk to you at the end of the service. Would you pray with me? Father God, we know that you are a God who is able to protect your people. We know that you are a God who knows the true problems of our own hearts. You have revealed to us what it is that keeps us away from running to you as our, our refuge. Oh Lord, would you humble us? Would you enable us to surrender ourselves to you, to turn to you in humility, and seek you and you alone? Father, would you teach us how to look to you? Would you teach us how to gaze our eyes on you as we depart from this place so that indeed you would be the refuge of our souls? We pray this in the name of Christ and for his glory and honor. Amen.